you connected. This morning, if you would, open your Bibles to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. I want to begin a new series today, simply entitled, Who Are You? Who are you? And in this series, we're going to be looking at the Old Testament compound names of God. We're going to look at, look at nine names the next three weeks. Three today, three next week, three the following Sunday. You know, when, when you meet someone and you begin a relationship with someone, it starts very casually, and you start asking very simple questions, and basically you want to know, who are you? What are you? You want to find out what makes somebody tick. What are they all about? It's interesting. I, I believe as we build our relationship with God, God wants to reveal himself to us. And one of the ways that God reveals himself is in his word. He tells us who he is. And for those of us who've not been walking with God long enough to really dig into some things or get involved in a group where you study some of these things, I really felt in my heart I wanted to share the next three weeks about who God really is and what he wants to be in your life. Because really when you start walking with God, the question is, okay, God, who are you and what are you and what are your intentions and what are your plans and how does all this fit in my life and how do I fit in your plan? We're going to answer some of those questions the next three Sundays. But, you know, I, I want to begin this morning talking about Moses because this kind of sets the whole thing up. I wish I had time to tell the whole story, but I really don't. But I'm going to move quickly through a part of Moses' story. Moses was born in Egypt. He was born a slave. He was an Israelite. He was born among the slave people. His mother protected him until she couldn't hide him anymore. And then she built a little basket and put pitch and mud and stuff on it and waterproofed it and put it in the Nile River. And Pharaoh's daughter came down and found the baby and raised the baby in her house. And even though mom, the original mother of Moses, got to be the nursemaid when he was little, he was raised as one of the Egyptians in the Pharaoh's home, in the king's home. So he picked up the ways of Egypt, but somewhere along the way, he began to learn about who he was and what he really was, even though he probably never really encountered God. He had heard stories about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but never really knew who he was. And then at 40 years of age, rebellion began to rise up in his heart. He saw a, a fellow Israelite being mistreated by an Egyptian, and he rose up and he killed the Egyptian. And then it started a firestorm, and at 40 years of age, he left Egypt and went running out into the wilderness, really, out into a desert area. And when he arrived out there, he joined up with the tribe of people and became a shepherd. He took care of sheep for 40 more years. So here's this guy, 40 years in Egypt, goes to the wilderness, now 40 years in the wilderness, and one day he's out taking care of sheep, walking along, and at a distance, he sees a bush on fire. Now, it, it really wasn't all that uncommon in that part of the world in the heat of the summer to see one of those old dead dry bushes ignite. It's, it's quite common. And he walked along and he saw it burning and probably didn't think too much about it at first. But as he walked along, he kept glancing back over and he noticed that this thing just keeps burning and keeps burning and keeps burning. It's not burning out. It's not being consumed. So he decides, I'm going to walk over there and look at this and see what's going on. And when he gets close to the bush, God begins to speak to him out of the bush. How many of you know that would be an, an intriguing, interesting situation to be in? 
out in the middle of the desert, just a bunch of sheep around, God begins to speak. You hear a voice coming out of this bush. And basically, here's what happens. God says, Moses, take your shoes off because the place where you're standing is holy ground. It's, it's divine dirt, okay? It, it, this is a special place. I've got a message for you. I want you to go back and tell Pharaoh to let my people go and you will deliver my people out of Egypt's bondage. Now, Israel had that promise going way, 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 way back, but they'd never put it into action. But God says, Moses, I'm sending you to deliver my people. I hear their cry. They're miserable. Go set my people free. So Moses, like most of us, begins to make excuses. Well, God, I can't do this. I can't do that. And what about this? And what about that? And then finally he says, God, I know those Israelite people. They're not going to believe me. Who should I say sent me? God simply says, tell them I am sent you. And literally what it goes on to say, tell them I am that I am, which simply means in the original writings, I am, I am. He said it twice. The message and the point of this is tell those people, tell those slaves who've heard stories about me from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers, Tell those people who've heard all those miraculous things that I did way back then. Tell those people, I exist. That's the message. I exist. And from what he said of himself, I am, from that root word comes the word that we use today when we describe God. We talk about Jehovah God. The word Jehovah means the self-existent God, the God who exists, the God who is. There is no other God. There are all kinds of fakes and phonies along the way, but there's only one God, and he is, he exists. And it's interesting. When you begin to look at God, Jehovah God, the self-existent God, he doesn't need anybody to prop him up. He doesn't need anybody to nourish him. He always was. He always will be. He had no beginning. He has no ending. He is God, and there's nobody like him. And God wants you to know him. That's the message of Scripture. So as you get into this, you begin to find something else. Remember Hebrews 11, the faith chapter of the Bible? Verse 6 says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because those who come to God must believe that... Anybody know what it says? That He is. We must believe that He is. Well, isn't that what He said at the beginning? I am. I exist. We must believe that He is... And he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So with all of this in mind, what I want to do today is, real quickly, I want to dive in to three names that we see in the Old Testament that apply to God, that tell us who he is and what he wants to be in our lives. Look, if you would, please, Jeremiah 23. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the verses on the screen. Look at verse number 5. Jeremiah 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming. This is a prophecy. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Pause here a moment. Anytime you see the word righteousness in Scripture, it's always a very religious word. You know, we don't use that word really much any place except in church. It's just like some of the other words we're going to talk about today. But he says he's going to raise up a branch of righteousness. When you see the word righteousness, shorten it to say a branch that is right or rightness. A branch that does what is right. A branch that is able to do true justice in every 
situation. And he goes on to say this, a king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and rightness in the earth. In verse 6, in his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In the Old Testament especially, and it was true in New Testament days, but throughout the Old Testament there are places and there are people who were known by the meaning of their names. When, when a child was named, it had a meaning. You see that with a lot of children in the Bible. But in this particular case, it's a prophetic verse talking about the birth of Jesus. 600 years before Jesus would even be born, Jeremiah begins to give this prophecy and he writes it down and says there's a branch of righteousness coming. He's going to rule our lives. And his very name is Jehovah Sidkenu, which means the Lord who exists, who reveals himself. He is our righteousness. That's his name. This morning I want to begin with this particular name because... Before we leave this place today, I would hope that every person in this room can understand what God wants to do for you, what God wants to do in stabilizing your relationship with him, what God has already done and what he wants to put in your life that will bring you into a closer relationship with him. The first thing is God wants you to know that he is our righteousness. He is our righteousness it's important because from the very beginning of time going back to adam and eve in the garden from the very first sin man was separated by god by sin scripture says all of sin and come short of the glory of god can anybody in the house this morning be honest enough to slip up a hand and say yeah i've been there and i've done that i i have sinned oh we got some perfect people in the house today you're probably self-deceived if you don't think that all of sin, we've all fallen short of God's plan and intentions for our lives. And sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from God. From the beginning of time, God has had a problem with mankind, and the problem has been sin. And in order for God to show his love to us through the ages of, of, of history and the ages of eternity, God had to deal with the problem of sin. And Scripture tells us that God himself became the price for our righteousness. God himself put his own son, God in the flesh, on the cross to pay for my sins that what was wrong with me could be moved out of the way and what was right with him could be put into my life. Jesus died on the cross to put his righteousness in us. Second Corinthians 5:21 says, "For he made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him." You know, I use this illustration all the time. If you're a regular here, give me one and a half minutes to do this. If you're new, this will mean something to you. If you look at the cross upon which Jesus died, and just imagine there's a cross there. When God put Jesus on that cross, and Isaiah 53 says, "It pleased the Lord to put him on the cross for our sakes." When God put him on the cross, everything that was wrong with us was put on him so that everything that was right with him could be put on us. That's the case 
of righteousness. Romans chapter 4 says this, verse number 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you're trying to earn your salvation and make yourself right in the sight of God, all you're doing is paying the debt you will never be able to fully pay. Can't do it. Verse number five says, but to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Friend, I want you to understand this morning, I don't care if you live a thousand lifetimes and do a 10 million good deeds, you can never buy your own salvation. I don't care what you do in your own strength and your own power, you cannot earn the goodness and the grace of God. But once we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we believe he's died for our sins and been raised from the dead, at that very moment, God declares that we are forgiven, we are cleansed, we have no blame in our lives, and we are righteous in his sight. Now let me stretch, let me stretch your imagination this morning. Everybody look right here at me. You see me? I am righteous. Now, some of you say that. That is a stretch. I am righteous. Because while you're looking at me, I'm looking at you, and I'm realizing, yeah, there's another stretch. You are righteous in the sight of God. If Jesus Christ is the Lord of your life and he's washed away your sins, God says, you are right in my sight. You are righteous. Turn around and look around the room at about five or six, seven hundred righteous people here today. Would you do that? Just look around. Look at somebody and say, I am righteous. Some of you aren't convinced yet. I am, tell somebody else, I am righteous. Don't tell your spouse because they know too much about you. That's a tough one. <laughs> Find somebody else. Say, I am righteous. I'm right in the sight of God. There's no other way to become righteous in the sight of God. No other way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. There is no other way. God, who are you? God says, I am your righteousness. If nothing else happens in this room today, I trust that before you leave this place, every believer will understand I'm righteous in the sight of God. I may not be perfect, but I'm righteous. I am righteous in the sight of God. All those things in the memory that says, no, you're not. God says, I've washed those things away. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. So, one last thing I want to say about that is, if God's forgiven you of your sins, you need to forgive yourself and move on. Amen. Number two, look at Leviticus chapter 20. The Lord is our righteousness. Leviticus chapter 20 gives us a, a little different picture. Leviticus 20, look at verse number 7. The Lord says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Now, I want us to think about those words before we move on. Because these two verses are intriguing to me. The Lord says, Consecrate yourselves, be holy, for I am the Lord your God. In the next verse, he says this, And you shall keep my statutes, my laws, my commandments. Keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. 
Now, I am not a Hebrew scholar. Some of you have never heard a redneck try to speak Hebrew. You're going to hear a little bit of it today. He's not only Jehovah Sidkenu, who's our righteousness. This passage of Scripture tells us that the Lord is Jehovah Mekadishkem, who is our sanctification. Now, let me explain to you today why this is important. In recent weeks, over the last two, three months, we've talked about the church, Pastor Zach and I, on different occasions, talked about the church. What is the church? Now, the church is very specific. In the original writings, in the Greek, it's ekklesia. It, it means to be called out of something. So if you're a member of the church, which means you've been saved, washed in the blood of Jesus, if that's you, you've been called out of darkness, is what Peter said, called out of darkness, and you've been translated into a kingdom of light. So when you use the word church, it literally means we are the called out ones. We've been called out of something, but we've been translated into something else. And this is where our focus needs to be. Because once God takes us out of this dark place and puts us in this bright place, everything changes. We see everything differently. We begin to read the Word of God and it comes alive and we understand that God saved us from over here and put us over here because He has plans for our lives. Now, I want to show you a couple things about this. The word sanctify means to separate something. It means to take something that's common, simple, maybe depraved, maybe immoral, maybe even vile, something that was supposed to be one thing that's been scarred and beaten up, to take that thing and then set it over here and declare this is now holy, sacred to God. Did you know when you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, God picked you up, didn't matter what was in your background, didn't matter what you looked like, what you smelled like, what was going on in your life, none of that mattered. He picked you up and said, here, I want you over here with me. Because I am the God, I'm the only one who can sanctify you, pick you up from where you were, and put you where I want you to be. I'm the God who sanctifies you. Hebrews 2.11 says... That when we receive this sanctification from God, we actually become a part of his family. I love Romans chapter 8. Because as you read through Romans chapter 8, and I wish I had a lot of time, I could take any of these names and spend a whole morning on any one of them. But in, in, in Romans chapter 8, it talks about the fact that we're now the children of God. We're in the family of God. And God has plans for our lives. And if God is for us, it doesn't matter who's against us. But it also tells us that Jesus died, was raised from the dead, that he could become the firstborn among many brethren. And once we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God separates us from everything else and everybody else, and he places us in his family. Romans 8 says, now we're heirs of God and join heirs with Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. But, but here's, here's the interesting thing. When you start talking about sanctification, there's two parts to it. Remember the verses we read earlier, the first part, he says, consecrate yourself, follow my law, obey me, walk with me, so on and so forth. He gives us that. And then he says, I am the God who sanctifies you. There's two parts to sanctification. I want to explain it to you real quickly. 
When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what he did on the cross, his broken body, his bloodshed, the life he gave, that's applied to your life, and it washes away your sins. You believe his sacrifice is full payment for your sins. When that happens, you're declared righteous by God, but then God also puts his stamp of approval on you, and he sees you as he sees Jesus, sinless, spotless, stainless, and he sets you apart in his family, and he seals you, and he says, now, you are sanctified, set aside for my purposes. What you used to live for, you don't live for anymore. I've got something better over here. What you lived for was for 20 years or 40 years or 80 years. What you have to live for over here is not only in this lifetime, but it is for eternity. So I'm setting you aside. I'm setting you apart in this. And, you know, Romans chapter 8, I was referring to it a few minutes ago. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 says that whom God foreknew, he also predestined. And what it literally says is predestined conformed to the image of Christ. He put us in the family, and he says, I see you like Jesus. Now, if you go back and read it in your Bible, if you've got Romans 8, 29 there, it says to be conformed, which makes it sound like it's future. But the words to be are in italics, which means the translators put them in there. God doesn't look at you to be conformed to the image of Christ. He sees you as he sees Christ. You are one of the family, and Jesus calls you a brother or a sister. Because God has sanctified you and set you apart in his family. One of the things that I hope God does in our hearts today is convinces us before we leave this church service, that we're not people over here and people over there who believe and people over there. We are the family of God. And friend, if you've accepted Jesus, you're in the family. He's put you there. You might as well become one of us because you're going to be with me for eternity. You might as well learn to like me now. <laughs> he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. So that, that's the first part. It's the legal aspect of what God could do. And by the way, Hebrews 13, 12 says that sanctification was paid for with the blood of Jesus. But then the second part of sanctification is the day-by-day -day living part. It's a progressive work of God in our lives. And let me, let me explain it to you. You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Let's just imagine you got a lot of stuff in your past, a lot of stuff in your history. Your mind's pretty warped. You've been really out there. You've got a lot of bad habits. You come, you accept Jesus, and all of a sudden everything changes. I'm now a child of God. I'm in the family of God. How many remember when you first accepted Jesus? How many remember the next day when you woke up and you knew everything's different now, but you woke up the next morning and nothing was different? Still living in the same body still got the same people around you, still got the same clothes, still got the same habits. Now you have to learn to walk these things out and become what God says you are. That's a progressive part of sanctification. See, some of us get confused and we think, well, because I'm not perfect yet, I'm not righteous and I'm not sanctified. No, 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 in the sight of God you are. But God says, now you start walking with me because if you'll walk with Jesus, he will rub off on you and you'll stop being like those people over here and you'll start being like Jesus. It's just naturally it happens. God will sanctify us. He'll begin to change our lives from the inside out and he will change our lifestyles from the inside out. 1 Thessalonians 4 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel 
in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do, do not know God. So what he's saying is, I consider you sanctified. I see you as Jesus. Now you need to walk with me and learn to become what I said you are and who I said you could be. Aren't you glad God's a patient God? He's so patient. But, but here's another part of this sanctification thing. How does God take me the way I am and make me what he wants me to be? How does he do that? Well, there, there's three specific things I want to refer to. Number one, his word. God speaks to us through his word. I tell you all the time, read the Bible, spend time with God. You're better off reading one verse and understanding it than reading 10 chapters and getting nothing from it. But spend time in God's word. Why? Because this tells you who you are. It tells you, th this is the DNA of the believer right here. This tells you who you can become in Christ. This tells you why God has sanctified you. It tells you the path you're on, what he's going to do in your life now throughout eternity. So read it because it reveals things to you. And as you begin to reveal, read it, it reveals things. You begin to wrap your faith around it. You begin to see God work in that area of your life. And he liberates you from this and delivers you from that and changes your desires for this. And the first thing you know, you look back and say, wow, man, I've changed a lot. Get around your old friends. Wow, you've changed a lot. Yeah. Did you know God gets glory when our lives are changed? That's what Scripture tells us. So the first thing he does, he uses his word. The, the second thing he does is he also uses the Holy Spirit to deal with our hearts. Because there'll be times when you're on a pathway and all of a sudden something inside just checks you and you know it's God and you're realizing, eh, probably don't need to be on this path. I probably ought to avoid this, not go there, not do this. I probably need to get back over here on this pathway. He uses the Holy Spirit to check us. And then the third thing he does, he uses our faith as we believe him and we respond to him. As we respond to God, he begins to change our pathways and change our desires. Everything becomes different because he is the God who separates us who sanctifies us, who changes us from the inside out. 1 Thessalonians 5 also tells us that God wants to sanctify us completely, spirit, soul, and body. So when people see the change, they give God the credit, they give God the glory, and they know God's alive. Can I tell you today, one of the only ways that we know that this book works is that our lives are changed. This will change us. So submit yourself to God, trust him and walk with him and let God be the God who separates you. Why? Who's God? Who are you? He's the God who sanctifies you. And then number three, the third thing, look at Judges chapter six. Judges chapter six. This is a story of Gideon and there's so much in the life of Gideon we don't have time to dive into much of it but I want to show you just one thing about the life of Gideon that's Gideon that's really important Gideon was a young man who was hiding from the enemy the nation of Israel was being ravaged by their their border countries they were coming in and stealing their livestock and stealing their food and they were taking away the best of the young men and young women. And so Israel was doing things in hiding, just trying to stay alive and make it. Gideon was a part of a small family, a small tribe, and he was probably the least significant in his entire family. And one day he's hiding. He's hiding, just trying to come up with a little grain for his family. 
trying to get by for another day. And something happens. Look at Judges chapter 6, beginning at verse 19. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. Now, here's what happens. Gideon's out there doing his thing, providing for his family. The angel of the Lord shows up. And when Gideon begins to hear the message of the Lord, he says, wait right here. It's only right that I should bring you a sacrifice. Now, I want you to see this because this is important. When Gideon goes to get a sacrifice, it's all he can do to come up with a little grain to eat. But somewhere he goes and finds an animal sacrifice, goes and kills it and cooks it. He brings it back and he lays it down on a rock. When he lays it down on a rock, he pours the broth out on top of the animal sacrifice and just soaks and drenches the whole thing. Here's what happens next. Verse 20. The angel of God said to him, take the meat and the unleavened bread, lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the meat and the unleavened bread and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. How many would like to have been there that day to see that one? Pretty cool, huh? See, this wasn't the only time in the Old Testament where God sent fire from heaven to consume a sacrifice. And it's the same thing that happens in our lives. When Jesus Christ becomes the Lord of our life, there's a fire that burns inside. Nobody else sees it. Nobody else knows it. We don't even know how to explain it. But we know there's something burning inside of us, and it's burning up everything that needs to be moved out of the way. We know it's the work of God. But I want you to see what happens next. Verse 22, now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said to him, peace be with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, the Lord is peace or Jehovah Shalom. Anytime I talk about God's peace, I always start with making peace with God. Because if you don't have peace with God, you're never going to have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But this is so important, I think, that I talk about this today. Because there are a lot of people even though they believe in God, even though they've asked Jesus Christ to come in their lives as their Lord, there are a lot of people who've not yet learned to live in peace because they don't understand how peace comes. Jesus, Scripture says, made peace for us on the cross. Jesus made the peace. He was the original peacemaker. There is no peace until peace is made. Jesus made peace on the cross. See, Gideon, in the Old Testament days, he's going through the motions to try to take care of things when this angel shows up and he makes a sacrifice and the fire comes up out of the rock and consumes all of it. And as soon as that happens, Gideon has a response that I think a lot of us have. He says, oh my God, I have had it now. I've seen God and I am about to die. 
If you look through the Old Testament, there are several people who had the same response because it was told to them. It was a superstition and a belief. If you see God, you will die. You know, God wouldn't let Israel look on his face. So from there on, they believe if God shows up and you see God, you're going to immediately die. The truth of the matter is, when God is revealed, you are so overwhelmed at how great and awesome and perfect he is, you realize how you don't measure up, and it makes you back away from him in fear. But the angel of the Lord spoke to Gideon and said, Gideon, don't be afraid. You're not going to die. There are people in this room, I guarantee you, who right now are afraid that if they were to die and stand before God, they would have no confidence because they think they haven't lived a good enough life, they haven't been a good enough Christian, they haven't done enough good deeds, they haven't done this, they haven't done this. Can I tell you something? We've walked through part of it already. Jesus is your righteousness. You cannot be righteous in your own strength. He's the one who forgives and washes away our sins. Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. Our God is the one who sets us apart. But third of all, peace only comes from God. True peace only comes from God. Because here's how peace works. Peace begins in your life when you can stand in the presence of Almighty God and have no fear and no condemnation for your past. When you're not afraid of the mistakes you've made, when you understand they're gone in the blood of Jesus, you're forgiven, you're, it's all forgotten about, God has set it aside, and you realize that he's not only sanctified you and made you righteous, but now he wants you to have peace. That's when peace begins. God doesn't want you to live in fear of him. Oh, there's, there, there's a sacred fear. There's a sacred awe. Scripture talks about it. But we are now the children of God. We're brought into his family. The angel of the Lord said, Gideon, you don't need to be afraid of God anymore, for the Lord is your peace. Some of us in this room today need to let the Lord be our peace. The Lord who lives in you, you need to let his peace spread. Because if you settle the matter of peace with God, it'll settle all the other fears that you're dealing with. Because it all begins with your eternal standing with God. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. It's interesting. When the Spirit of God moves inside of us and regenerates us, gives us new birth, makes us alive, when we believe in Jesus and the Spirit of God comes inside of us, what happens is He brings the nature of God. And one of the things He talked about is love, joy, and then peace. The Spirit of God that lives in you wants to put God's peace in your heart so that you know eternity is settled. I can know God and I can walk with God. God, who are you? God says, I'm your peace. I'm your peace. So in closing today, at the end of the day, it all comes down to one thing. What have you done with Jesus? 
What have you done with Jesus? He's the only hope for forgiveness of sin and righteousness in the sight of God. He's the only hope for sanctification, to be set into the family of God for eternity. And he's the only hope for peace. What have you done with Jesus? As I close right now, I want to lead you in two prayers, really. I want to put two prayers together. Maybe you're here today and maybe you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never asked him into your life. Maybe you've never sat in a service like this or maybe you just never really understood it. But maybe you're sitting here today and you're realizing, you know what? This makes so much sense. This is so real. And maybe something inside of you is turning over. That's God knocking on the door of your heart saying, I love you. I want to wipe it all away. And I want you to be a part of my family. But you have to let him in. You have to say yes. By grace we're saved through faith. Got to say yes to Jesus. We do that with words. Please come into my life. I need you. I want to lead you in a prayer and give you an opportunity today to accept Jesus Christ into your own life. Not interested in giving you religion. I want to introduce you to God and let you be in relationship with him. It all starts right here. And then a few minutes later, I'll pray a second prayer for people who are battling with things in their own hearts. But I'm going to ask you to bow your heads right now. I'm going to ask everybody here to pray this prayer with me. Even if you're a believer already, I want to ask you to pray this prayer. It'll help those around you. We're going to pray this prayer right out loud and just put our faith in Jesus today. You pray these words. Say, God, I need you. And I open my heart to you. Please come into my life. I ask you to be my Savior. Become my Lord. I believe Jesus paid for my sins. He is now my Savior. I believe you have an eternal plan for my life. And I want to fulfill it. I want to be your child. So from this moment forward, you're my Father. I'm your child because of Jesus. Teach me your ways and I will follow you. Thank you for receiving me. Heads are still bowed one more moment. Father, I pray for every person in this house. That if they've prayed that prayer, if they've opened their heart and sincerely asked Jesus Christ to walk, wash away their sins, I pray that right now they will know, they will know, they will know, they will know, based on your word, you are their righteousness. They don't make their own righteousness. You bring it to us. And from this day forward, they are righteous, right, perfect in the sight of God. I also pray, Father, that they would know that you have sanctified them, put them in the family, and it's time for them to get in, be one of us, and let you work in their lives to change them forever. And finally, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that doesn't know your peace and they're struggling with their past, that right now the Holy Spirit would convince them of what you promised, that you're the one who brings us peace. God, right now, I break the grip of fear, I break the grip of things that are tormenting. I command it to stop their lives with the enemy. Let the peace of God just flow into those places and settle the issues. In Jesus' name I pray. Everybody said, amen, amen, amen. If you prayed that per first prayer today and it's the first time you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or maybe you've been the prodigal and you've been on the run for a while and you, you decide it's time to come home, that's the best decision you've ever made in your entire life. 
And we don't believe it's the end of the journey, it's just the beginning. And you've started this relationship with God. We want to give you a little tool, a booklet called The Next Seven Days. It'll just help you build that relationship with God. When service is over, there'll be prayer teams in the front of the room here. They're just here to pray with people, any kind of need. You can just walk down here to one of these teams and say, can I get the booklet? They'll give it to you. If you want to go, you can go. If you've got questions, you can visit. If you want prayer for something else, they're here to help you. But no big deal. We just want to help you get started walking with God. You can just get it and go. If you're in a big rush, you can go to the Connections or out past the Connection Center in the lobby. There's a table by the glass doors. It says the next seven days. You can stop there and get the same book there if you're in a big rush. Again, no strings attached. We're just glad you've joined God's family today. Can we welcome folks into God's family?